Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of Wham Vault. I'm joined by the man himself, Jeff Wilson, Chairman of Wilson Asset Management. Jeff, great to see you. The, the old man. <laughs> Good to see you, James. Now, Jeff, you're about to list your eighth LIC, Wham Strategic Value. Yes. Could you tell me a bit about uh, the strategy itself and why you've decided to bring it to market? Yeah, uh, probably. You know why are we doing it? We're doing it to simplify our structure. Um, you know, I, I read a, a great book a little while ago, um, you know, talking about Steve Jobs at Apple and, and just saying, you know, what he really focused on is to simplify choices for people. Um, what we're doing with Wham Strategic Value is we're buying a dollar of assets, uh, and we we're trying to pay eighty cents. Yeah, you know, of course we'd love to pay fifty cents if we can. Um, so it's really an undervalued asset play. And it's really going to be doing what we've done for the last 20 years, you know, buying assets cheaply. Um, but the, the focus of this, of WAM Strategic Value, is focusing on mainly listed investment companies and listed investment trusts. So, um, and, and we, we've been doing that for 20 years. We've got about $150 million worth of exposure to those um, type of companies. And that's currently housed in WAM Capital and WAM Active. So we're selling it all across to WAM Strategic Value, which will be 100% you know, focused on that. And you know, we've got um, Oscar, who's the lead PM for those two entities. You know, there's Matt, who's the lead you know, PM for uh, WAM Leaders, Katrina, who's the lead PM for um, WAM Global, and Danya, who you know, runs WAM Alternate Assets. And um, the fascinating thing is, who's the lead PM for this new company is myself. There's <laughs> WAM Strategic Value, so the pressure's on. Pressure's back on. Yes. Jeff, one of the things you've been able to do with your staple of licks is ensure that they trade at premiums to their NTA. Hmm. What's been the, the key ingredient or ingredients to making this happen? Yeah, and, and of the, you know, the, the six listed investment companies we floated, you know, they're all trading at NTA if not a premium. You know, the, the biggest premium is WAM Research, which is 40% plus, which is you know, ex extreme. You know, WAM Capital is at a 20% odd premium, which is, is, is assuming that we'll continue to outperform on a consistent basis. So, I mean, they're, they're big big challenges um, for the business. Uh, and in terms of you know, what, is our, what is the secret sauce? Now, what I think is um, you know, when you're looking at listed investment companies or listed investment trusts, the, those entities, they have to do a number of things. You know, firstly, they've got to perform, um, and that's probably a given with fund managers. You know, secondly, they've got to provide a growing stream of fully frank dividends because your marginal buyer tends to be your self-managed super fund, and that's, we've been able to do that. Thirdly, and this is probably what all listed companies need to do, is treat shareholders with respect. And unfortunately, you do get a number of companies that don't understand that the shareholders own the company, so they've really, you know, they, they really don't treat shareholders with the respect they should have uh, as your owners. Uh, and the fourth thing is something that we really spend a lot of time on shareholder engagement, uh, the communication, uh, and the marketing. And, and we've got, you know, we employ eight people in that area. We're just adding another couple. Um, and that's, to me, that's, that's the, the, the area that a lot of people, when they set up 
listed investment companies, listed investment trusts, they sort of can focus on the first three, but they forget to focus on that. And that, that is very important. Jeff, we've got a number of questions from Wilson Asset Management shareholders about the new vehicle. So we might run through a few of those. As a starting point, can you provide any specific examples of the LITs or LICs that the new vehicle might buy or hold? Yes, the, so with WAM Strategic Value, we're raising $225 million. $125 million is going to come from the WAM family, our 100,000 shareholders amongst our listed investment company. The other $100 million is coming from a broker firm. So that's where the money's coming from. And also, um, we're selling across $150 million worth of LICs that we own in WAM Capital and WAM Active uh, at, at an average price uh, over the 10 days before WAM strategic value lists. So there's already, already going to be about $150 million worth of portfolio in there. And in terms of some of the companies that are in there, you know, you've got exposure to some of the best um, boutique fund managers in Australia. And to me, it's nearly unbelievable. You can get exposure to these people and get exposure cheaply. You know, one is um, you know, VGI, which has been very topical recently. You know, Rob Luciano, great fund manager. You know, we're able to buy exposure to him at 85 cents in the dollar. You know, what, a, what a great opportunity. Another one um, we've bought more recently, some of the Magellan Concentrated Fund. So Hamish Douglas, getting exposure to him. Uh, we're buying at about a 12% discount. We've just started a nibble there. Um, and if it goes to a bigger discount, we'll take a bigger position. Uh, we have, have a, a small position in Thorny, um, and that's Alex Waitslitz. And you're getting exposure to his uh, LIC at a 20% plus discount. Um, now, it's not only, they, they, they're currently in our, in our portfolio smallest positions because we've got to be confident that we can see the catalyst that's going to change the valuation and, and move those share prices, say from being 80 cents in the dollar to be trading at a dollar in the dollar. So when we have confidence that we have identified those catalysts, yeah, then, um, then we'll increase our positions. But that, that's, that's an example of some of the you know, opportunities you get. And to me, it's nearly unbelievable that you can get exposure to these people. I love buying value. I, I love getting a good deal. It's sort of like going to buy a new car. The guy says, look, you, know, you were going to pay $20,000 for the car. You, know, you can have it for $16,000. Like, how, how good is that? Yeah. Well, Jeff, you've talked, um, you know, value is one thing you love. The other thing which you're notorious for is paying fully frank dividends. Mm. What's the dividend strategy for WAM Strategic? The portfolio, um, at the end of April, the portfolio we've got exposure to at the moment that, that's going to go into WAM Strategic uh, is trading on a running yield of about 3.6% uh, fully franked. So our plan will be to pay a fully franked dividend to shareholders and our plan will be to grow that fully frank dividend over time. And what we try to do is enhance the actual yield we're getting with uh, realised profits you know, to, to give shareholders a better um, than a fully frank return that they would get if they're investing in the market. So it'll be, yeah, we'll start off and then the plan will be to provide a, a growing stream of fully frank dividends. What about liquidity during times of distress? 
you know, how have you thought about that with, the, with this new portfolio? Well, the great thing about the listed investment company structure, it's a closed-end pool of capital. So as, as a fund manager, we have enormous um, you know, flexibility. So we don't have to buy when everything's expensive uh, and, and we're never forced to sell when everyone wants their money back, you know, when, when you know, things are going badly you know, during a GFC or the like. We can take whatever opportunities we see present themselves and we can take a medium and long-term view. And, and what you tend to find is when there are you know, periods of stress, which you were talking about, that's when the exceptional opportunities present themselves. So, the, you know, myself as being you know, the lead PM for this, so we just have, have, have a, a cash buffer so we're well positioned you know, when those uh, opportunities present themselves. Are you participating yourself in this raising? Yeah, yes, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm committing, well, I'm, I'm investing $5 million. Um, so yeah, that's the, I think that's a good start. Mm -hmm. I, I actually have a, in our more recent um, IPOs, like WAM Global and WAM Leaders, which we've floated, you know, they're the more recent ones, I've got about a, a 12 to 13 million dollar exposure to each of those individually. So, yeah, if the opportunity presents itself, you know, then I'd like to increase my exposure to you know, WAM strategic value. But initially, I'm I'm starting with you know five million dollar exposure. Now, you mentioned also that you're going to be the, the lead portfolio manager, putting that that cap back on. Who's going to be supporting you in that role? Well, the great thing is we've got 14 uh, professionals. Um, that look at, at the market globally and domestically. And our focus really is buying undervalued assets and domestically, even though occasionally there might be a, a global opportunity to present itself, but it's mainly domestically. Uh, and, and everyone, like we work in an open plan office, everyone feeds in you know, with the ideas. Um, also, in terms of you know, working through some of those opportunities, you know, Jesse Hamilton and Marty McAfee, really it's a, a whole team effort. Mm -hmm. Well, this WAM vault really is for your shareholders, so I was wondering if you had a, a final message about the opportunity in, in, in discounted assets for, for Wilson Asset Management investors. Well, you know, when you're investing, you know, we're, we're all investing our hard-earned you know, cash, and, and we've all, all got a finite amount of cash. Now, what I, you know, I, I really enjoy doing is you know, buying something I think is exceptional value. Um, I, I remember you know, you, when you're reading about Warren Buffett when he set up or took over or got involved with Berkshire Hathaway in, in 1965, you know, some of his early investing was in you know, closed-end pools of capital you know, like LICs uh, and LITs. A and to me, that's the purest um, type of investing. Great. Well, Jeff, it's always great to see you. Not often enough these days, but uh, <laughs> thanks for time, taking the time to sit down with me and also to speak with your investors. Thanks, James. Hello, I'm Kate Thorley, and I'm joined with our lead portfolio managers, Oscar, Katrina and Matt, for another edition of Wham Vault. And we're going to address some of the questions that um, shareholders sent in. So Katrina, I might start with you. How are you positioning your portfolio and what's changed since we uh, did Vault in November 2020? We've transitioned more of the portfolio towards really reopening winners. So we've obviously since then had the vaccines announced. Um, 
We've added a number of stocks um, in, in terms of sectors such as travel, media, uh, housing out of the US, for example. But we still retain a number of those longer-term structural winners as well in areas like health and wellness, digitisation of payments, uh, and automation. So a bit of a balanced approach in terms of the portfolio, um, but expecting, you know, as economies reopen, a lot of those shorter-term um, wins to come, of, come from those reopening plays. And Matt, from a big cap Australian equities perspective? Yeah, very much like Katrina. I mean, the big change we've had with really went overweight resources last year as China put their foot down for the credit cycle. That's played out now. Now we're flipping back towards financials, energy. We still think it's got some legs in it. Um, but very much along Katrina's um, lines of positioning for you know, the recovery from the, the recession, you know, economies coming back and that output gap closing, and that's where we're really positioned at the moment. And Oscar? It's pretty much the exact same. Um, well, the first half of the year we did quite well out of some sectors such as e-commerce, uh, agriculture, healthcare. Those, co those companies are really they were benefiting from COVID. And then as, of course, the, the Pfizer vaccine got announced in November, we had to quickly change the portfolio. So guys did a great job in the team in shifting to those cyclical sectors such as financials, uh, beaten up sectors like aged care, construction services. And I guess, I guess from my perspective, what we've seen is it's been a rapid shift away from growth to value, but it's still the valuation difference between these companies are the highest it's been in 50 years. So there's still a long way to go, particularly if we start to see rising interest rates. That's great. And Matt, sort of looking more um, slightly longer term, one of the questions that um, shareholders were interested in was around inflation. What are your thoughts around inflation? Yeah, I think the market's pretty well priced in correctly at the moment. So you're looking at in the US around 2.5% is the break-even um, rates in, in the US, so 2.5% inflation. I think that's right. What we're looking for now is events to change those expectations. So. We're looking at the closing of the output gap. So that's the, the difference between where the economy should be and where it is now. If that closes faster, that will push up inflation expectations. And also, um, generally, the, the stimulus out there at the moment. So that's a real driver at the moment. But I think for investors, you've, it's pretty well priced in the market at the moment. So unless there was an inflation shock, which I don't think there will be, I think the market has it correct now. So what we're focusing on now is any event to change those expectations, not around, you know, will inflation hit 2.5%, that's in the market. Like, that's not the conversation, it's around events now which will shape the shift in that, either down or up, and that's what we're focusing on at the moment. It's been fascinating in the small cap part of the market. We've done the rounds and been across Australia pretty much for the last two or three months, and it does feel that every company you speak to has, has cost pressures at the moment. I think the best example we've seen is Tassel, which is a salmon producer. I didn't know this until COVID happened, but they used to export 90% of their salmon in a passenger jet. So obviously with uh, flights, uh, international flights effectively stopping, they've had to go to the sea and that's a, a cost of 11 times higher than their normal freight costs. So I guess from our perspective in small caps, looking at the small cap industrial companies, we really need to pick those, those companies that have the ability to raise prices to offset these cost pressures. And that really is a phenomenon that we're certainly seeing globally. I mean, every day when we're talking to a company, whether they're in the US or Europe or the UK, certainly, I mean, we were speaking to one this morning that was complaining about polyethylene pipe. We've seen lumber complaints, freight, as, as Oscar's saying. Uh, so it's, you know, it's daily they're, they're talking about these, these pressures. Uh, at the moment, most companies are saying it's, it's totally fine in terms of passing that on. Um, and, and a lot of are taking that view that there is it is transitory. 
So it is a key watch point and it is a factor we're considering and really thinking about the companies in terms of whether they have pricing power uh, if, if, it isn't, if it does not prove to be as transitory as, as the current assumptions are. Mm. And I guess that's the important thing, like inflation will dictate monetary policy. So the inflation is very important to watch because that will ultimately determine the, the interest rate hiking cycle. So that's why it's so important. And just thinking about now um, the tech sector, uh, it's obviously had a fantastic run up until more recently. Oscar, perhaps starting with you, what what are sort of what are you seeing in this sector? Yes, speaking from the Australian perspective, I think yeah we've really been able to differentiate the winners and losers in the technology sector. I think there was a period for a number of years where if you're a company that had pay at the end of your name, it seemed to get a huge re-rating and you trade at 20 times sales or something like that. So it does feel like those days are sort of coming to an end. There will all be, always be opportunities, but um, you know, if we look at the technology sector in Australia, I think that the best example of a company that's done well through over this period is probably Zero, which is the largest one. But it's clearly had, it's got such a high level of recurring revenues. It's a SaaS-based business and it's had very low levels of churn. I think I've been surprised at how resilient the business has been through here and really confident around their market share growth that they can get in the United Kingdom and Australia and the US over time. Katrina? Yeah, look, I think back to the point around interest rates, there's been a, obviously a key issue for, for tech stocks in terms of duration assets, you know, discount, you've had interest rates coming down for a decade, inflating um, prices of some of these tech stocks, particularly in that concept end of the market where they don't generate any earnings as Oscar said, they trade on enormous multiples of sales, and we've we've seen some of that hype come out of out of those share prices. Uh, when we're looking for opportunities, it's really in businesses that actually do have valuation support, and we certainly can see a number of pockets that are interesting, that you know, and a number of plays in the tech sector when we look globally. Um, but it's certainly nowhere, you know, not at all in those concept stocks where, you know, they don't generate any, any earnings. And it's really, you know, whether it's in automation, digitisation of payments, um, you know, these are, these are trends that we think, uh, you know, have some longevity, but also you can buy stocks with, you know, significant valuation support. So I think it's, it's become a lot more nuanced and you really got to, you know, pick those individual stocks, not just buy any tech, tech stock as Oscar said, with the, you know, whether it's pay or software as a service, you can you know, bring out there. So I think it's a, it's a bit more nuanced right now. So Matt, there's been a lot of headlines around resources and, and a so-called resources super cycle. What, what are your thoughts? Is there a resources super cycle? I'd argue no. Um, resources, I mean, the primary driver of resources is China. They, are a big, they consume you know, over 50% of copper, well copper, um, 70, 80 percent of iron ore. Um, what happened last year when, when the COVID hit? Obviously, that was the, the, the centre of it. Um, the Chinese government immediately went and ramped up credit origination, um, infrastructure investment. It was huge the amount of stimulus they put into the market. So that drove commodity prices. And then you had supply issues around, especially in copper. You know, Latin America has been you know hit hard by COVID. So. You've had supply side issues and then stimulus within China driving this cycle. It is not a super cycle in my view. It's really the boom bust cycle we see in China all the time. They, they put the, the foot down and then they pull it back and they're pulling it back at the moment. So I think if, if you're gonna play resources from here, you really gotta be specific around um, different commodities. Iron ore I think is pretty well done now. Um, still will be elevated, but I think that trade is very much over. Um, but 
you know, things like manganese and alumina, aluminium, those things haven't rallied yet, but the spot prices have. So I think if you're going to position, you're going to play in that space. Um, now, Katrina, we actually had quite a few questions from shareholders around the US uh, market. You've just come through the reporting season. What's been interesting out of that market? Look, speaking to companies on the ground, certainly, and, and seeing how the, you know, the earnings they reported through, through the recent reporting season, Certainly, demand is coming back strongly. A lot of companies were pretty conservative in terms of willingness to put out guidance, etc. And you saw, uh, I think it's about 88% of companies beat. Um, so a significant you know, level of beats to conservative guidance. Uh, what was interesting was some of the share price reactions were pretty muted despite this. Um, so, you know, and, and look, in some cases that gave us, you know, opportunities in companies where we thought that is a cracking result. The share price hasn't moved um, and, and we were able to buy more. I'd say talking to management teams, there's no doubt, you know, demand is, is, is coming back. Um, there is these supply issues in certain pockets, whether it was semiconductor chips causing issues for you know, ability to um, roll out or manufacture gaming consoles, cars, um, you know, computers themselves. So, you know, there, there are some supply, you know, temporary supply uh, constraints. Um, but generally, on the demand side, companies are very positive. Supply, you know, despite those hiccups, you know, is starting to, to come through. Uh, and then you've got this backdrop of consumers generally being pretty cashed up in a lot of cases because they've been locked down, uh, unable to spend their money, and so a lot of pent up pent up demand. So you know the backdrop for the economy there is is pretty strong. Great. And Matt, uh, over to you on uh, on the banks. This is always a common question for our shareholders. What what are your thoughts on the on the Aussie banks? So the banks actually traded really well through COVID. So it was predominantly through government support. So the RBA, APRA, basically all came in and gave them support, gave them cheap funding, and the cheap funding's still in place now. Um, last year, they, it was in March, April, they struck huge provisions on the basis of COVID, um, you know, deteriorating the economy into a state where there was a lot of defaults. That's been wound back now. So the banks are well capitalised. They're going to release provisions over this year. There's going to be a lot of capital management too. So we were fortunate enough to catch up with a few of the bank CEOs and very much on the table is how do we return some of this capital to shareholders. So I think CBA, CBA will do big off-market buyback, handback franking. Um, NAB will do on-market buyback. So they're in a great position. And also the, the headwinds, which are low interest rates, are starting to unwind now. So the, the big effects have been felt already. And in 22 and 23, they'll start to turn to tailwind. Uh, so it's actually a very good spot for the banks at the moment. But the easy money has been made. The last 10, 15% is probably about left in them at the moment. And Oscar, another question from investors was uh, around if interest rates do start to rise, what sectors here in the Aussie market do you see? Yeah, well, very, very similar to Matt. I mean, it's, banks aren't traditionally a sector that we hold in sort of WAM capital, WAM micro cap, but the outlook for the banks is very strong. Interestingly enough, I caught up with a, one of the largest non-bank lenders uh, yesterday in Melbourne, and they were saying that the number of impaired or problem loans that they have on their books right now is actually lower than what it was pre-COVID, which is incredible when you think about it. So I guess, yeah, with the rising interest rate environment, um, that should boost net interest margins. And for these reasons, we've got uh, large positions in the portfolio in my state and, and also Virgin Money UK, which you know, really should benefit from an improving UK economy. 
Thanks so much for your time and thanks so much to our shareholders for your question. Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of WAM Vault. My name's James Marley and I'm your host. And today I'm speaking with the portfolio managers of WAM Global, Katrina Burns and Nick Healy. Katrina, I'm gonna start with you. Can you give us an insight into how you're positioning the portfolio right now? Yeah, sure. So we've really gone through a number of phases in terms of evolving the portfolio since the pandemic hit. So really for us, you know, in early 2020, Phase one was defence, so we didn't know what central banks were going to do, we didn't know what fiscal support would be provided. Uh, so at that point we were adding companies that were in supermarkets, COVID beneficiaries, etc. Uh, phase two, uh, as we went through you know, that first half of, of 2020, was really about structural trends. So what structural trends had been accelerated through COVID uh, and yet were multi-year stories that we thought had, had longevity. Then phase three, as we went through into the second half of last year for us, was about reopening. So we didn't have vaccines yet at that point, but we were starting to lend uh, you know, our thoughts to what companies were well-placed, had reset cost bases, um, set their businesses up extremely well for eventually when we did have vaccines and for when economies reopened. And now we think we're entering phase four, which is really this return to normal. So that path to normalisation. In, that, in this stage, we think, you know, we've had equity markets rally very strongly since, since the lows in March last year. And so stock picking really comes to the fore. We're seeing a number of opportunities for the portfolio, both short term in, in reopening plays that aren't completely pricing in that opportunity and still in those structural long-term winners uh, where, there is still, where there is certainly a multi-year story uh, and so it's a more balanced portfolio today with valuation really as the core tenant. We were talking a little earlier before we started the interview about the index at the headline level being quite subdued but underneath a lot of moving parts. Katrina, I was wondering if there are any immediate opportunities or short-term opportunities that are being presented at the moment. Those businesses where COVID, they've actually taken COVID as an opportunity to uh, improve their business. So you know, they've cut costs, they've made their businesses more efficient. Um, the industry structure might have actually improved because competitors haven't had um, the ability to do what they have. Uh, and, you know, it might be, say, travel for, for instance, where you've had actually a lot of uh, devastation amongst, you know, agents have going out of business, etc., leading to a situation where you might have an online player that now is significantly better positioned than they were prior. So, yeah, we love those examples of, of companies that are now, as we look uh, into an, an, a global economy reopening, they're actually better positioned than they were, but this isn't necessarily being reflected uh, in share prices. And, you know, people are looking at what the, this business was like historically rather than what it will be like going forward. So in that vein, we see a number of opportunities in areas such as um, travel, which I, which I just touched on. So um, we like businesses there, including Booking.com. Um, we like, um, we've invested in Trigano, which is the largest listed RV manufacturer in, in Europe. Um, Amadeus, for example. Uh, and, and, in, and as a second derivative of travel, we like businesses like Fiserv, FIS, Visa, um, which you know, have portions of their business that are exposed to travel. And as that comes back, 
they'll be beneficiaries. Uh, housing is another area, particularly US housing, where we still see a number of opportunities. Um, businesses like Ferguson, Carrier, Lowe's, we think are still very well positioned. Uh, and, and we think there is some longevity uh, in that um, and, and still valuations that, that aren't necessarily fully reflecting the opportunity these businesses have. Um, media would be another example. Um, we, we've talked previously about Straw, which is the largest um, out-of-home um, billboard company in Germany, 60% market share, 90% as they roll out digital billboards. Um, has a, these great um, assets in the digital and online space that aren't being valued right now that will spin out um, in the next few years. Um, then if I think about mining and infrastructure spend, um, we see a number of opportunities there. So businesses like Komatsu, um, uh, like Quanta and Mastec, which are very well positioned to benefit from these infrastructure um, bills and stimulus that's coming out of, out of the US. Um, so yeah, we see a, a significant amount of um, short-term opportunities uh, as economies reopen. And all the talk last year was around shifts in uh, new trends, um, you know, structural opportunities that are, that are more of a longer-term burn. What stands out now as some of the structural trends that you think remain interesting? Yeah, look, it's, there's been enormous amount of debate around what you know, which trends have longevity and which are just very transient um, in terms of, you know, benefited from COVID, but then the world will move on. And, and Australia is a great example of that in that if we think about our daily lives, a lot of things have returned, you know, to, to what they were before. People are back in supermarkets, going to movies, concerts are restarting, etc. Uh, but we think there are some structural trends that have really been accelerated through COVID and will continue um, to play out as we, as we look forward. Uh, so areas that we think where that, where that is the case would be in um, the health and wellness uh, area. So there's no doubt that um, COVID has very much shone a light on the importance of investing in, in health and wellbeing. Uh, and we have um, you know, a number of exciting businesses that are very well positioned to, to benefit from that, from that trend. So they'd be things like Avantor, Thermo Fisher Scientific, Simply Good Foods. Um, another trend that we think has um, been accelerated uh, is in the digitization of payments. You know, if you're a company and you've been forced to go into accepting credit card, debit card, uh, from previously having only accepted cash, it's very hard to go back. Um, and we think that that wall of, um, you know, that transition from cash and check is, is ongoing and won't, won't slow down, um, but just has been accelerated through, through COVID. So we've got a number of um, exposures there, including Visa, Fiserv, FIS. Uh, and then another trend that we think is, is certainly been highlighted through, through COVID and, and the, the benefit of that is, is automation. And so, you know, we, first we had trade wars, then we had COVID, and security of supply was, you know, clearly highlighted through through that period. Um, and and what you've seen is that uh, even as demand is now coming back in the US, it's been very hard to get um, workers that are, um, you know, receiving stimulus, etc., to get back into into their jobs. Uh, and so that, you know, really plays to the hands of automating. 
Um, and so we've, we've got a, a, some interesting um, stocks that really benefit from, from that thematic and, and that's things you know, like businesses like Zebra Technologies, which is listed in the US. Um, so yeah, there, there are a few of the trends that we think do have longevity beyond, you know, beyond COVID-19. Katrina, we're living in unusual times. Is there anything out there that's giving you concern? Look, we are watching certain pockets of, of, of markets and of, and of asset price inflation. So, you know, whether it's the volatility in crypto, um, the saving of zombie companies or the, the rise and fall of certain concept stocks. So these are pockets, you know, that, that we're watching carefully. Uh, we think, you know, whilst we don't invest in, in any of these, of these areas, um, potentially down the track, if there's fallout, that might create opportunity. Um, but yes, they're probably the areas um, that I'd highlight that we're watching. Uh, the other area is, is just, you know, what happens with interest rates and, and what that means for certain assets and, and certain equity prices. Because if you look at, um, you know, duration assets have benefited considerably from the consistent fall in rates over the last decade plus. Uh, and as rates rise, you know, that has consequence um, for, for, you know, any duration asset like various tech companies, etc. So, you know, what happens with rates is, you know, is obviously a, a key watch point. Um, but yes, they're probably the areas that we're, that we're watching most closely right now. Nick, US earnings was, um, you know, have recently opened the lid on how some of these companies are actually performing. What were some of the key trends or observations you could make from the, the, the recent US earnings reports and maybe pick out some specific examples from within the portfolio as well? Yeah, so I'd say big picture, the, the earnings season in a word was strong. Um, certainly for our companies, we believe they ran themselves well through COVID, they control costs, but they continued to invest for the future and they kept the expectations relatively controlled. And so as economies opened up from February, what we saw was by and large, our companies were beating expectations and significantly raising the full year guidances. Um, now, while we're in the main very happy with how our companies performed fundamentally, I would say on the day the stocks were more muted in their responses. And this was actually seen more broadly in the MISCI World Index where 75% of companies beat, but on average on the day, company, stocks were down. So we like that setup. We like buying undervalued growth companies where we can see that they're operating very well and where we have attractive entry points. Uh, an example of which would be TransUnion, which is, in our view, the most innovative credit bureau in the world. So our view going into earnings there was this was going to be a big beneficiary of opening up. And the prior guidance of management, which was a bit soft, was, in our view, just conservatism. So even today, we're really positive on TransUnion. We think they'll continue to beat as the rest of the world opens up and they gain traction in key new verticals like fraud, which we've seen a significant rise in, uh, media and gaming. And, and an another example I would give you would be Ferguson. So Ferguson are a leading North American home and commercial building supply company. Although they're 100% North American, they're listed in the UK. So what we think that means is a lot of investors don't look at them and they trade at a pretty attractive discount to peers. Similar story, our view was it was going to be an opening up beneficiary. Uh, and for them in particular, they serve mainly the professional channel. 
So the professional channel was really held back in 2020 because of access to site issues. So they didn't have very strong comparables. And we saw a great result with a 30% earnings beat and uh, significant raise to the full year guidance. Um, and again, that's a company where we think there's actually quite a lot of conservatism left in the numbers. And they're about to dual list in the US. And so we think the discount to peers could very well close. So those are just a few companies where we like what we see, we've added during earnings season, and they fit our process very well. Katrina, if you'd leave investors in WAM Global with a message on your outlook for the year ahead, what would you say? We're optimistic about, about the year ahead. We're optimistic about economies reopening. Um, we think there is some nuance between which geographies, which sectors and which companies that you want to invest in. Um, but that's, that's an incredibly fertile um, hunting ground for ideas and we, can, we, we are finding significant opportunities that, and have great investments in, in exciting businesses. Katrina and Nick, great to catch up and thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks. Hello and welcome to another instalment of Wham Bolt. My name's James Marley, I'm your host, and I'm joined by Dania Zinorova, who is the Portfolio Manager of Wham Alternative Assets. Dania, great to see you again. Hi James, good to see you. We caught up six months ago, which was when you just inherited the portfolio for Wham Alternative Assets. I'd love to hear what you've been doing in that time. Very busy six months for me. Um, the first step was to do the strategy review on the portfolio to rethink how we construct the portfolio and grow it going forward. Um, so rather than having very fixed strategic asset allocation targets, I adopted a more holistic portfolio construction approach. Second, I uh, reviewed the maturity profile of the portfolio. Most of the illiquid assets that we inherited, they have very clear exit strategies. So over the next, next two to four years, we will be exiting those opportunities. And by 2025, I expect that most of them will be exited and we'll keep recycling capital into new investment opportunities. We already had this year one very good exit uh, from one of our private equity uh, investments and it delivered strong returns. I expect there will be more exits happening this year. Thirdly is um, new commitments uh, that uh, I've done so far and it, it was great to come in into the role and have a good level of cash. Uh, so I had some room to go and select the opportunities and commit capital to those opportunities. So we've done three new commitments so far. And Finally, very important component um, of where I was focusing on is valuation. Valuation of the underlying investments. So I have monthly update calls with our investment partners when we discuss the investments, discuss any progress that has been made and how valuations are changing month to month if they change. We also do very robust valuation assessment every six months when we prepare the report for auditors. So that would include um, reviewing the current valuation approaches for the investments, understanding why those were chosen, understanding what are the market comparables that are being used. So it's a very thorough process that um, I think does add a lot of value to the portfolio management. 
Could you describe to me or explain the holistic uh, portfolio construction process that you mentioned earlier and tell me about some of the exciting opportunities you're seeing? Yeah, sure. So holistic portfolio construction approach um, is very much in line with total portfolio allocation. And it's about starting with the bigger picture, looking at the macro trends with strong tailwinds. Um, and that's a huge value add to any portfolio, identifying those themes that have sustainable strong tailwinds. For me, uh, in the current market environment, it's about digitalization of our economy and society. It's about growing aging population, climate change, increasing demand for food. But there are also other trends coming up to the market. So from, the, from reviewing the market fundamentals, then it becomes more apparent where those trends can be played better from the timing perspective, from the relative valuation perspective. And the examples of how it's actually implemented are our commitments, one, to policy diversified infrastructure fund, second, Barwon institutional healthcare fund, and third, more recent one, private equity mid-market biostrategy in Australia. So Barwon, for example, it's nicely fit into this growing aging population theme. And it can be played across alternative asset classes. You can tap into this theme by investing in private equity, venture capital, real estate, infrastructure. So how do you choose? It's very important to look at the actual market fundamentals. Um, where are the valuations? What's the competition? How big is the opportunity set currently in terms of availability of new investments? And then from there, make a decision which asset class to pursue, then going into more top-down investment approach. Dania, can you talk to me a little bit about how you generate returns in the portfolio? It's a good question, James, because obviously we talk a lot about capital appreciation and yield and the combination of these two. For WMA, my focus is really bringing it to a more balanced mix in terms of capital appreciation opportunities and income. And it's also driven by the fact that the portfolio is structured as LAC, so we need to think about regular, fairly reliable income returns in order to keep paying dividends and grow profit reserves. So bringing in investments that could provide yield 5 to 7% per annum, which is very realistic in alternative asset classes, but also looking at opportunities that provide very good, strong capital appreciation. And this would be private equity or higher risk return strategies within infrastructure and real estate. And capital appreciation can be different. As an example, with our recent exit in private equity portfolio, Better Medical uh, Fund was um, invested in 2017. So since the inception, the fund or the portfolio company grew from six clinics or medical centers to 35 clinics or medical centers. So this type of private equity strategies, um, they're called growth strategies, 
they are focused on identifying and acquiring portfolio companies with this strong growth potential, either expansion geographically or expansion into subsectors. And the investment team would then, once the transaction is complete, would then fund this growth and work closely with the management teams how to expand. Now, the return that we achieved uh, was over 17% IRR, which is a very good return in this current market environment. And those assets, they are in high demand. So we, we had a very good strategic buyer who was acquiring this portfolio. And another portfolio at the same time was quite a substantial transaction. Well, Dania, if you would leave investors in WMA with a message on the outlook from here, what would you share with them? I would say that alternative asset classes represent a very attractive opportunity set in the current environment. And I've been seeing for the last 18 months shift, even among institutional and retail investors, from more traditional asset classes into alternatives as they continue searching for yield, given what's happening um, in fixed income world, and also as continually looking for diversification benefits and capital appreciation over time. Great. Well, Dania, great to catch up again and thanks for your time. Thank you, James. Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of Wham Vault. My name's James Marley and I'm your host. And today I'm joined by Matt Haupt and John Ayu, who are portfolio managers of Wham Leaders. Matt and John, great to see you both again. Yeah, likewise. WAM Leaders is coming up on a five-year anniversary, which is uh, a really nice milestone, and, and even nicer when it's being marked with uh, periods of strong performance. Um, one of the marks of WAM Leaders is you guys have been able to successfully pick inflection points in the market. I'm keen to know, what do you think is the big inflection point that sits ahead of us now? Yeah, James, I think the two real big ones this year are around China Credit, Obviously last year they went incredibly hard trying to get the economy going during COVID. Um, that was 12 months of intense credit origination, um, infrastructure, everything was firing um, on the policy front to get them going. We think this year that will decline. We're starting to see early signs of it declining now. So the last few months have been soft. But our big call this year is the credit impulse in China slowing and affecting commodity prices. Obviously commodity prices, everyone's really bullish on them at the moment. We're a bit more cautious on those bolts. So, iron ore in particular. I think that's a real big inflection point this year. The other one would be around tapering. So last year was fiscal and monetary policy being incredibly easy, like the, the best it's been in history. It's really a historical moment. Everything was fired at the economies to try and get them going and get asset prices high. That will come to an end this year. And what I mean there is policy will be withdrawn. So it will be very easy withdrawal at first, but eventually that will accelerate. And already the market has got interest rate hikes priced in with a terminal rate. What we're looking for now is any change in the, the pace of the hikes and a change in the terminal rate as a key determinant of what, how we position the portfolio. John, if we take ourselves back 12 months, the big call was the, the reopening and, and um, the, the economic recovery. What are some of the opportunities that you see right now? Yeah, look, if we take a step back, we've seen a two-paced recovery. And much of the domestic markets and domestic economy, domestic facing economies have recovered, particularly in Australia. But we still haven't seen international borders open up. There's still elements of the market which still have some ways to go. 
if we put that perspective back on equity markets, valuations have become relatively full on a lot of names, but we still see pockets where the recovery still hasn't been fully played out. So sectors like healthcare with a particular CSL, you know, you haven't seen the volumes of collections recover, and we still think next year you'll start seeing that starting to advance. Qantas, you know, you still haven't seen international, international travel and corporate travellers fully return. So from that perspective, we still see there's, there are pockets, but valuations are starting to get towards the upper end. So for us, we're starting to become more and more selective around those opportunities, and, we, and there's fewer and fewer of them. One of the topics you didn't touch on, Matt, when you talked about inflection points was inflation. Now, inflation is the, the grand debate that's taking place for many investors at the moment. What's your view on inflation and what does a rising inflationary environment mean for equity investors? Yeah, it's a question everyone's asking at the moment. Inflation, is it transitory? Um, you know, is it structural? Um, I think the key point is you actually don't have to get it right in the, the medium term. Like, we, we are going to have higher inflation. We've seen that coming through already, uh, me, merely from base effects. So you will get higher inflation. So that will feed this um, trade. The medium long term, we actually don't know whether this will be. Like, our view is um, there is a lot of deflationary um, effects in force. The, you know, it's thought, you know, large monetary increase um, will cause deflation um, over time. It used to be it would cause inflation, but studies have shown that it's actually deflationary um, over time. So that argument, I think we can park that medium to long term and just focus on that short term to medium term and we will get higher inflation. So you've got to position your portfolio according to that. So when we look at that, we look at, you know, where do you park your money in a high inflationary environment? Um, normally it's around um, hard assets, so like commodities, um, which goes against the, the credit cycle, but the, the base metal or commodities will, will actually um, get some attraction and flow in, into those. If, if, if we add to that, any, what we're seeing in the inflationary environment is we start to see the early stages of cost pressure coming through um, you know, from, from all, all scopes of business. You know, for the last five years, we've been characterised by cost outs, and most companies have been talking about cost outs and cost outs. We're going to be seeing the opposite story over the next two to three years. So what we really need to see is that top line growth coming through. So if you kind of look around the world, supply chains are bottled up still and you're starting to see you know, lumber, pricing, lumber price accelerate up. So we've got to work at how long this, this lasts when wage pressure starts to creep through. We're starting to see that already, um, particularly in WA around miners and cost pressures there from a, from a wage perspective and, and a talent basis. So again, we've got to watch this really carefully and see how long it lasts because as borders open up, we should start to see migrant, migrant workers come return to Australia, should alleviate some of those cost pressures. But from that standpoint, we, start to, we really need to see the top line of corporate Australia start to accelerate now. Yeah, that's an important point too around our output gaps because economies are still under their potential GDPs. So as that output gap closes, that should be inflationary. So that's why we're quite confident in the short term that you play the inflation, you play the higher interest rate environment, and there are things you can really sort of put your money towards um, working in the short term. And the last thing is that what we're most excited about is that we're starting to return back to normal markets again. You know, where thematic investing and just, you know, the, the lower rates forever and people just buy sectors rather than stocks, I think we're getting towards the end of that. And from that standpoint, we're really excited about the opportunities that we get from a stock selection basis as opposed to just pure thematic investing. You gave us an inkling to a disagreement that you have with a, a common view that we're in a commodities super cycle at the start of one. Tell me about that view. Well, I guess when you look at previous commodity super cycles, it was really a demand uh, driven event where you had like the urbanisation of China, 
um, for about 20 years. I mean, that was an incredibly um, driving force of the commodity cycle. Um, in China, like we touched on there, have mini cycles of boom and bust cycles based on credit. Um, We're on the downturn of that one at the moment. So I think the supply side problems at the moment are driving this uh, thematic around the super cycle and also the inflationary pressures of money printing. Um, that is the common thesis of the, of the super cycle. I, I think that's wrong. I think it's, that supply side will get sorted out. It's a restocking event. You know, economies were closed for 12 months. Everyone ran down the inventories. Now people are scrambling to get the inventories back uh, and manufacturing back, um, building that base. So yeah. that is a driver. Not We're not in a commodity super cycle um, unless there was another country which could pick up the slack from China because they are the grill in the room, you know, accounting for over 50% of chopper, 70% um, of iron ore. I mean, they are the driving force of commodity prices um, in the short term. So I don't think we are. And just to add, on that supply side, yeah, you know, and we go back to closed borders. Labor is really tight, and if you look at where, how COVID's affected countries like Chile and Peru, it's really affected the supply output, uh, and, and also Brazil. So from that standpoint, as that starts to normalise, we should see some equilibrium returning to commodity markets broadly. Matt, let's switch from one dominant sector in the in you know the top 100 to another dominant sector, which is banks and financials more broadly. The banks have had a a great run-up, um, and we've talked about it in previous WAM vault instalments. What's your view on the, the banks here, and, and how are you playing that financial sector? So we're still very positive on the banks. The, the trade last year was quite obvious, you know, trading at discount to books. Um, now the trade is a little less obvious based on the share prices. So the, the story around Australian banks is still around capital management. We actually haven't seen them enact capital management, and we will see them over the next three to six months, really start to give back some of that excess capital. So CBA will probably launch an off-market buyback with a large franking component. Um, National Australia Bank, I, I think, will do you know smaller bite-sized buybacks over the next few years. So the capital management story is real. That will come through. Also, the provisions which were raised during the COVID period obviously will come back as the Australian economy has performed quite well through various measures through support and you know containing COVID. So there is still legs in the financial trade. It's probably done most of its work, but you can easily see another 10, 15% upside from here, um, you know, or holding else equal um, in the environment at the moment. Okay. Banks are dominant players. Outside of the banks, what are some of the opportunities that you found? Well, I still think, um, are you talking in the financial space? In or? financials, within financials, yeah. yeah. I, I guess the insurers are probably lagging where the Australian banks were. So what happened was the Australian banking sector raised provisions on the forecast of you know, economic conditions being bad. Insurers got hit with the business interruption insurance claims or potential claims, so they've raised provisions for that. It's just taking longer to unwind those business insurance, the BI. So we feel like the insurance sector is probably six to nine months behind the Australian banking sector as far as trade goes. So there's still upside in, in the Australian insurance sector. It's just going to take a little bit longer to get paid for that. Mm. So I think, I think that's a key area where there's still some upside. Yeah. And a couple others potentially is um, computer share um, and uh, challenger. So challenger is something we've, re we've reintroduced into the portfolio recently on the back of some you know, a, a weak update. But we think as the world normalises and rates start to head up and they start to get control of some of their risk parameters internally, we think that could re-rate as well. So there, there are still pockets of opportunity starting to emerge in, in financials. Well, we've talked about a few sectors and stock specifics there. Matt, I was wondering if you could 
wrap things up by giving us a, a bit of a synopsis on your view of the outlook for the Australian economy and some of the, the key things that are catching your eye um, you know, domestically. Yeah, I, I guess with the Australian economy, um, there's obviously a disconnect with the share market, um, which, which is always the case. The share market is always forward-looking. So if we look at the Australian economy, we'd say we're, we're coming out of a recession, you know, we're early cycle. The stock market, I'd say, is late cycle. Um, because when you when you move policy rates where they went to, you pull forward returns. So your future returns are limited now. So the economy is catching up towards the share market. It's just a debate about will the economic recovery be as fast or into the um, policy withdrawal. So that's just a, it's a balancing act at the moment. And the way I look at the Australian economy is we'll be incredibly supportive until the Fed moves. So we're going to sit behind the Federal Reserve, the, the RBA. They won't move until they move. So we've probably got towards Q3 or Q4 before we get tightening in the Australian economy uh, on the policy front. So I'm quite constructive on the Australian economy um, until we get that tightening. And that's just going to make it a bit more benign, the recovery. Um, and Because we're in this extraordinary period where policy rates couldn't be any easier. The, the RBA of holding the three-year rate down. Um, you know, you know, it couldn't get any easier than this. So we are in the best conditions we could possibly be in, but the mismatch between the economy and the share market just says future returns for the share market are limited because policy will be going the other way. And from that standpoint, we're strongly, yeah, we're strongly confident around active management and focusing on rotating that portfolio when we see opportunities. Um, we think there's going to be significant dislocation towards the back end of this year. So, uh, from that standpoint, we're watching very carefully and, and ensuring that you know, we, we position the portfolio and, and manage risk um, accordingly over, over the next six to 12 months. Yeah. I guess, yeah, to follow on as well, I think this period of excesses, which we're in at the moment, you see it everywhere. You know, different asset classes, you know, um, crypto, all that will come out of the market as tapering happens mm -hmm. because that's all predicated on ultra low rates and the death of fiat, which once we start tapering, we'll, we'll kill off that argument. So that excess in the market will come out as soon as tapering starts is, is our view. So Matt, for investors and shareholders out there, how would you summarise the opportunity that exists in WAM leaders from this point going forward? Yeah, I think for WAM leader shareholders, there's two very big inflection points this year. And historically, we've been very good at capturing those inflection points. So we have the, the two, we've got the China credit impulse rolling over, and we've got tapering happening this year. So they are very important events, and we're quite excited about the opportunities on these inflection points when they play out this year. Well, Matt and John, thanks for your time today. Thanks, James. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to the latest instalment of Wham Vault. My name's James Marley, I'm your host, and today I'm joined by Oscar Oberg and Tobias Yao, who are the portfolio managers of Wilson Asset Management's micro and small cap strategies. Oscar, I'm going to start with you. I understand you're bullish on the outlook for the Australian economy. Could you give me an insight into what's driving that optimism? Yeah, given how well, James, that Australia's managed COVID and I guess you know, what we're seeing with low interest rates, record house prices, it's really hard not to be bullish on the Australian economy at the moment. I mean, Tobias and I have seen God, hundreds of companies really in the last two or three months, been across Australia, and it really is a very positive and buoyant picture uh, for corporate Australia going forward. And I think that one of the best examples, I caught up with a non-bank lender, one of the largest in Australia just yesterday in Melbourne, 
Um, and they were saying that the number of problem or impaired loans that they have in their book is actually lower today than what it was before COVID. So it just shows you how strong the Australian economy is right now. So with that um, positive backdrop, what sectors do you think are set to outperform? So we've certainly played the transition from growth to value, and we did that as soon as the um, announcement around the Pfizer vaccine occurred back in November. Um, we've positioned the portfolio in sectors such as uh, financials, diversified financials, and then some other what we would call beaten up sectors, I guess, the most impacted sectors and companies from COVID. And these are sectors such as aged care, construction services, building materials. Um, and we see a really buoyant outlook for, for these companies, particularly for earnings growth over the next two or three years. Mm -hmm. Small caps have had a really strong period. Um, you know, what's your outlook for, for the smalls? Yeah, very bullish, James, still, still are. Um, I think it's a great period for small cap investing, probably one of the best we've seen. It's great for our investment process as well. Um, and that's largely because around 40 to 50% of the small cap companies that we look at are exposed to, to the economy in some way. Now, we have shifted our thinking. When we talked six months ago, we were very bullish on sort of retail and automotive and agriculture. We have shifted to more cyclical and cheaper sectors, uh, such as financials, um, mining services, etc. Um, and we do think that these sectors will outperform sort of over the medium term. And in terms of that, that small space, have you got a, a tilt for, for size? Is it smallers or mid caps? Where, is there a sweet spot there? The strategy really hasn't changed since this time last year. Um, we wanted to stay in more liquid companies, um, bigger companies. So I think the average size of the companies in that we invest in WAM Capital is around $3 billion. Uh, we probably sell around 80% of the portfolio if we wanted to in, in five or six days. So. Look, we're staying liquid. It's a very volatile market. It changes every week. It changes every day. It goes from growth to value. So we're happy, happy staying liquid. And um, you know, it's still an uncertain market. Who knows? We might have an outbreak of COVID. Touch wood. But you know, at the moment, we're, we're happy with how we're positioned like that. Okay. Well, the reopening trade's been, um, you know, one that people have been really focused on. Sectors like housing, travel, media uh, in the spotlight. Why don't we go through a few of those? Sectors, Oscar, I'll kick it off with you. Got a view on housing? Yeah, very bullish housing. Um, you know, Sam, who's in our team, did some great work when the Home Builder Scheme got announced just over a year ago. It's about $100 billion. And effectively, that's the equivalent of 12 months of new housing construction in Australia. So it's just massive. So, you know, the building materials have been a good space for us. Um, we still hold, um, we've got big holdings in Fletcher Building, Adelaide Brighton and Reliance uh, worldwide. We've also got those financial companies exposed uh, to the housing market. So that'd be like a Gemworth or an Australian finance group. Travel space, we're all still waiting to find out if we can go offshore, but domestically travel's been really strong. How, how are you thinking about that particular part of the market? Yeah, we're really bullish travel. So we've been, added, we've been adding to our positions um, because it does actually feel like sentiment to the travel industry right now is the lowest, we think, since um, the vaccine got announced in November. And I think that's because we have been slow in Australia to roll out the vaccine. But people have forgotten before um, COVID hit, using Flight Centre as an example, over 50% of their earnings came from the US and, and Europe. And we're about to go into the European and US summer. And yeah, there's been a lot of quotes from tourism companies globally. And the best one we saw was Hilton, who said, yeah, their bookings in the US are up 10%, uh, comparing that to the pre-COVID period going into the summer. So we do see high levels of pent up demand. And we, we do expect one, once we get back to normality, a lot of that money that's gone into the retail sector will come back into the tourism sector. Mm. Tobias, the other sector we're gonna to have a chat about was media. 
what are your views on the space? It's been had a bit of a revival and a renaissance. Mm. So we're definitely bullish the traditional media sector. We have holdings in Seven West Media, which is the old Channel Seven. Uh, U Media, which is a large outdoor media company, and also Here, There and Everywhere, which is the old Australian radio network. Now, coming out of COVID, we believe companies will have to spend aggressively to try to re-establish their brand presence in the market. And if you add the additional ad spend that's going to go into the next federal election, you know, our view is that over the next 12 months, it's going to be a very buoyant ad market, and that's going to directly benefit the three players I mentioned earlier. The other common thread between all these players is they all have their firm-specific catalysts. So for Seven West Media, it's about divesting and deleveraging. For U Media, it's about rolling out a cost-out program under the new CEO. And for Here, There and Everywhere, it's about crystallizing the value of the minority stake in a high-quality software business. Okay. Now, Oscar, last time we caught up, um, we talked about agriculture, and it was a, you know, a part of the market that you were pretty bullish on. Could you give me an updated view on your view across that sector? Yeah, we're still positive, James, but we have shifted um, our focus, I would say, in terms of um, the companies that we quite like at the moment. So Grain Corp and Elders are still in the portfolio, but they're at a lower weight. And that's largely because we think the conditions we're seeing seasonally across Australia is you know, as good as people have ever seen it. Um, so we have transitioned more into some, some of those agricultural stock exposed to a reopening style trade. And United Malt Group's an example. That's one of the largest uh, malt processors uh, globally, and it's exposed to uh, effectively a reopening of restaurants and pubs in the United States. Uh, so we think that's going to be, they're going to go well. And also Select Harvest, which has been a business that's been impacted by very low almond prices for some time. There's a drought in California. California is the biggest producer of almonds. So we do see the potential that almond price starts to lift over the next few years. So it's an early call, but we quite like that one. Now, Tobias, it's, it's hard to pick through the market and, and find those stocks that that may not be grabbing the attention. Um, have you got a few ideas of, of, of parts of stocks or ideas that you think are being a bit overlooked at the moment? Yeah, so I have three ideas, um, all of which we've gone substantials in recently. The first company is Virtus Health. It's actually the leading IVF clinic group in Australia. We, we bought the stock around a year ago on the recovery trade, but our current investment thesis is premised on the new CEO's ability to find new revenue streams. So this is in uh, precision fertility, in a genetics testing and in also digitization services that they can uh, use for um, companies overseas. It's trading on 14 times price to earnings ratio. So we think a lot of these additional optionality is not being priced into the current share price. The, the, number t uh, the other company is Ardent Leisure. Now they own main event in the US, which is like Dave and Buster's, they own family entertainment centers. Um, they also have a theme parks division here in Australia. Now, the US recovery is actually going really well on the back of strong government uh, support for the consumers um, and a much more relaxed COVID restrictions that's currently uh, in place. Our view is that at the current share price, uh, you're not paying anything for the theme parks division, which is over $100 million on the balance sheet. So the risk reward trade-off for this one is really appealing for us. And the final company is Lynch Group. It's a recent IPO, but, but it's actually a business that's been around for decades, and it, it is the number one floral supplier in Australia. We think this is a value company, company a growth company priced on a value multiple. Um, and the market uh, currently underappreciates the medium term growth drivers for this business. Um, so it's on 11 times PE. We think there'll be earning upgrades and perhaps a couple of inorganic um, M&A opportunities uh, over time. Well, Oscar, it's been a, a really bright spot in the market, the, the small caps. 
What message would you give to investors about the opportunity in the micro and small cap part of the market going forward? Yeah, there's a lot of commentaries. You know, I think because the market's up a lot since this time last year, and people say, oh, the market's too expensive, market's too expensive. Now, we'd agree with that with certain pockets of the market. And certainly, you know, what we've seen with technology companies, healthcare, biotech, they are expensive, no doubt about it. But I think there's, you know, on the other side of the spectrum is there's a lot of cheap companies out there and you just got to find them. And, uh, you know, a good example is Seven West Media, which we own in WAM Capital, WAM Microcap. I mean, that's trading on a price earnings multiple ratio of three and a half times earnings right now. Like it's less than half of what Channel 9 uh, trades on. So like a company like that, that's sitting right now in our wheelhouse. And it's a company we like to invest in. Um, so we're seeing plenty of opportunities. We're seeing plenty of companies with catalysts. And so for that reason, we're, we're very bullish small caps and micro caps going forward. Okay, well, Oscar, Tobias, great to catch up. Thanks for your time today. Thank Shows. you. Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of Wham Vault. And today we've got something new, a new feature section where we're gonna be going through some buy, hold and sell ideas with the analysts that power the Wilson Asset Management portfolios, everything from micros to small, large and global stocks. Joining me, I have Sam Koch, Sean Week, Anna Mill and Will Liu. Good afternoon, everyone. Sean, you are first cab off the rank today, and why wouldn't we start with a hot sector, buy now, pay later, zip, buy, hold, or a sell? Yeah, zip's a sell for us, James. Uh, the key issue we see there is around competition rising globally, and we've got real question marks around the sustainability of long-term margins. Okay, Anna, QBE, insurers, is a buy, hold, or sell? That's a buy from us. We're very big on financials overall. We think banks have seen the first leg of the trade and the insurers are next. It's our top pick in the sector due to its exposure to bond yields and the rising rate environment. Oh, we've got a bull. Well, let's go traveling again. It's been a while. Uh, booking holdings, buy, hold or sell? Booking is a buy from us. So we believe it's a great way to play the pent up demand in global ledger travel. The company's right size its cost base. It's got a huge opportunity in terms of market share and we think it's well positioned to play the travel recovery so it's a buy from us. Okay, Sam it's your turn in the hot seat. The death of the office was much, you know, was all the talk in 2020. Servcorp, is it a buy, hold or a sell? Servcorp for us is a hold. Um, we really appreciate the fact that management didn't waste the crisis. They took the opportunity to cut cost and actually reduce their floor space really well. And at the moment, although valuation is super compelling, we sort of see that we're expecting a trough in conditions before we want to label it as a buy, it's a hold. Okay, we'll stay with you. Sinlay Milk, it was, you know, these, these agricultural stocks have been all the rage. Is it a buy, hold or a sell? Sinlay is a sell for us. At the moment, I guess, we're really worried about the balance sheet. It has $500 million of net debt. It's forecasting a loss of 20 to $30 million after tax this year. And we really see risks with the, the company looking to expand its capacity at the time where volumes are coming down for one of its key customers. Okay. Anna, one of the stocks that must be in just about every Australian portfolio, CSL, buy, hold or sell? CSL is a hold for us. It has significantly underperformed the index over the last you know, 18 months now. Um, I'd say short term it is actually a buy. I think collections are coming back and there's going to see some momentum in the stock. However, we're a little bit nervous going to the August results, so we are a hold. Okay, Sean, domestic travel, we're all doing it. C-Link, ship on the harbour, buy, hold or sell? We're bullish C-Link, it's a buy. Um, yeah, I mean, the pent-up demand we think um, in the tourism industry is significant. Obviously, their uh, transit systems bus business as well has proved to be a great acquisition. And we think the catalyst from here is really concentrated around additional contract wins. So that one's a buy for us. All right, well, we're going global and we're talking pets. CVS Group, buy, hold or sell? 
CBS Group is a cell. CBS Group is a UK vet veterinary services provider that is second largest in the UK. We think it's a sell because the number of key catalysts have already played out. So they've made acquisitions, they've improved their margin profile, and they've delivered a strong earnings update. So we think the catalysts have played out and valuation is full, therefore we're a sell on CBS Group. Okay. Sam, we're going to go with you. Local operator, Molus, buyholder or sell? The next Macquarie Bank. Uh, Molus is, is a strong buy from us. We see that they can grow earnings three ways, funds management, their corporate advisory business, and also the new lending business. I guess that's key and the market's not really appreciating the earnings growth in that new lending side of things. They've upgraded guidance already this year and we see further tailwinds for that business. Strong buy. Okay. Anna, we're back on you. JV Hi-Fi. It's actually had a really great 12 months or so. Have we got enough TVs in our houses? Buy or sell? <laughs> in our perspective, it is a sell at the moment. Fantastic business. Sales per square meter unparalleled. Yeah. However, it's cycling just monster comps. Uh, offshore comps haven't been very forgiving in terms of cycling these uh, prior period sales, so we think at the moment it is a sell. Okay, the other thing that's been booming has been mortgages. Gemworth, buy, hold or sell? Yeah, so Gemworth's the largest provider of uh, lenders mortgage insurance um, in the Australian market. We think it's a buy. Um, it's experiencing very strong tailwinds as a result of the growth uh, in the housing market. Provides strong leverage to a rebound in interest rates uh, for earnings. And we think similar to the uh, domestic banks, you're going to see significant capital uh, reserve releases post the, the wall of or the flood of capital they've built up last year. That's a buy. All right, last one. Will for you, PPG Industries. Again, give people an insight to what it does. Is it a buy, hold, or a sell? So PPG is a hold. PPG Industries, they're the largest coatings producer in the world, listed in the US. So we think it's a hold. We think the business is in, really, in a really sweet spot right now. They've got Pricing increases, they've got volumes rebounding as global industrial industrial production picks up. However, we think valuation is fairly priced right now. They've beat and raised at their latest quarterly results, so we're a hold for PPG Industries. All right, folks, this is the segment where we put your ideas from the Wilson Asset Management Survey to the analysts. So I'm going to run through the stocks again, small caps, large caps, and globals, and I'll get each of the analysts just to introduce the stock and give you their view, whether it's a buy, hold, or a sell. Let's test your ideas. Let's go with you, Sean. Beston Global Foods, buy, hold, or a sell? Beston Foods is a buy, a bit of a controversial one, but this is a multi-year turnaround strategy which uh, is coming to, coming to fruition now. Uh, we think the business is really well positioned to benefit uh, from the lactoferrin strategy, which we think medium term can drive significant earnings upside, so it's a buy. Okay. Wiser, Sam, buy, hold, or sell? Wiser's a hold for us. I mean, obviously there's a significant momentum in the personal lending space at the moment, but we believe that the space is quite competitive, and also the valuation is getting up there. It's a hold for us. Okay. Well, we're going to go global. Apple, we've all got one in our pocket. Buy, yes. hold, or sell? Yeah, Apple's a fantastic business, but it's a hold for us. We just don't think the valuation justifies the growth potential over the next couple of years, and we think there's better ideas elsewhere globally. So, Apple is a hold. All right, well, let's stay on global tech titans. Alibaba, buy, hold, or a sell? We're bullish on Alibaba. So, Alibaba is a buy. Um, we think that this year's a little, the share price has been a little bit weak because there's a bit of uncertainty around the investment cycle. We think longer term they're going to reap the benefits of the investment they're making this year. We think they've got huge under-monetized assets and it's an attractive longer term opportunity. So buy on Alibaba. Okay, great. Anna, I'm looking forward to your answer on this one because it's a pain point in my personal super. Um, and it's obviously tip of the tongue for a lot of your investors. A2 milk, buy, hold or a sell? A2 milk has been through a bit of pain recently to say the least. Uh, <laughs> Everything's got a price, and so for us now it has become a hold. Oh, a hold? You can't even give me a buy. <laughs> Controversial hold. <laughs>
building and construction has been going gangbusters in Australia. Borrow, buy, hold, or a sell? Borrow is a buy. Uh, we think management is highly incentivised to pull off the transformation program that is ongoing. There is a buyback in place and a lot of catalysts on the horizon in terms of divestments. Okay, Sean, let's go to Tyra. Had a bit of a bumpy start to the year. Is it a buy, hold, or a sell? Tyra's a hold for us. Uh, we've just got some question marks, I guess, still remaining around you know, the issues that they've had with their terminals previously. So, yeah, at the moment, we've got that one as a hold. All right. Sam, a stock I've not heard of, so I want an intro and your view buy, hold or sell on Dusk. Dusk is a strong buy for us. Dusk sells candles and diffusers, and if you go down to your local shopping centre, you'll be able to pick one up for your, for your grandmother or for your mother. We really like it here because we see multi years of of earnings growth ahead of it. Okay, well, they're a hit too with uh, grandmas. <laughs> Massive hit. <laughs> Note to all of you people out there. <laughs> well, let's talk about gaming because it is a booming industry, and I think a lot of people uh, have got a lot of interest in where that's headed. EA Games, buy, hold, or sell? EA Games is a buy. We're extremely bullish, particularly on the longer term structural opportunity as gaming becomes increasingly penetrated in the population. They have the best intellectual property, they have the most creative content, the best studios to produce the highest caliber game, so we're bullish on EA games. It's a buy from us. Okay, Anna, it's still gaming, it's gambling. Aristocrat, buy, hold or sell? Aristocrat is a buy for us. Uh, it's recently printed uh, some great numbers. We think there's more to come. It's highly leveraged to the US opening, reopening trade, uh, and there is upside from the iGaming opportunity. Okay, Sean, one of the absolute poster children of 2020 was Temple, Temple and Webster, as we stuffed couches into every crevice of our Houses, buy, hold or sell on Temple and Webster? Yeah, we're a hold there, James, and I think you've highlighted the key reason. We just think it's getting more and more challenging to cycle the comps given the tailwinds they've had. Management have highlighted that they're willing to reinvest significantly in the business, which is delaying the operating leverage. So medium term, we like it, uh, but in the short term, yeah, we think it's a hold. Okay. Sam, Max 7, I'm assuming this is not a fancy new razor blade. Buy, hold or sell and tell us what it does. <laughs> Max 7 is a hold for us. It's trading a significant discount to some of its listed peers, but what they do is they sell enterprise software technology into the hospital space, into the medical space. And for us, they've been through a booming period of sales, but at the same time, that should come to an end soon. It's a hold for us. Okay. Final stock for today, Sean Kogan. It's been that um, retailer that keeps innovating itself and diversifying, a buy, hold or a sell? Yeah, Kogan's a sell for us, James. I guess the key issue we have is inventory in the short term, which was highlighted in their recent update. Um, there's a lack of real visibility, I suppose, around when those issues will be resolved. And I think coming out of COVID as well, uh, we've got question marks around, I guess, lifts in competitive intensity across the industry and, and what that will mean for margins. So yeah, that one's a sell. Okay. Well, to the four of you, I think you've done a great job. To all the viewers out there, shareholders at Wilson Asset Management, I hope you enjoyed this new instalment of Wham Vault.